All right. And, and as we're only about six months along, most of these events, I would think, would be top of mind for you. If it's only been six months since you saw not only the finger of God, but the fist of God bring down terror upon the Israelite oppressors in Egypt to be able to unfold the ten plagues, to unleash the power of God, reveal it before their oppressors, and then not only that, but to liberate, liberate two million oppressed slaves into their new life, filled with song and tambourine and celebration. And then, just moments afterwards, as they make their first tour, heading towards the promised land, God determines to test them and refine them. Because these are a people having just kind of come out of the shell shock of their lives that now need to be refined into an amazing holy host of the Lord to be able to head into the conquer land, into the uh, promised land, and make that a conquered land, and to purge it of the evil that is there. And the evil that is there has steeped for 430 years until it has come to its full brew measure. And, and now God is ready to use His people to be able to bring holiness together with the promised land and to see glory at the end of it. But it's not just going to happen with the flip of a switch or the parting of a sea. It's going to happen through the training of a people. And a training of the people to rely on one main thing. That is to trust in Yahweh. To trust in the Lord every step of the way. Then if he could refine a people whose chief strength is their trust, their childlike, wondrous trust in the Lord, then he will have for himself a people that can bring great glory to all the world. God's great, great goal here. And as they first make their way around, we, we read right after the celebration in chapter 15, they, they come to water, but the water is bitter also called Mara. And as they come to the, the Mara waters, God is able to make it sweet again as Moses is able to purify that water. And, and the people ask, what, what can we drink? And they have a, a, a bit of a, a, a questioning, of course, at that point. But yet in the desert, water is brought their way. Now, while that, that was a bit of a good questioning on their part, it then moves on to them becoming hungry. And now we're only a couple weeks later. And, and yet they had been fed and they also came out with quite a bit of their own food. But, but now they're, they're running out of food and they begin to now grumble. And it's not just questioning, but grumbling. And as they grumble, Moses then goes to the Lord. Because the people aren't going to the Lord. They are grumbling amongst themselves. Moses goes to the Lord and God provides them quail at night and manna or the flake-like uh, sweet bread every single morning. Astounding that, that God responds again and again to their obstinance and their mistrust, although he's trying to refine them towards trust, with another embrace of grace along the way. And now after they've been provided water and food, they now take another turn in the desert. And we're still only fresh out of enslavement, fresh out of the, the very evidence of miracles, being guided every step of the way, by a pillar that is the presence of the Lord. A pillar of fire at night, a pillar of cloud in the day. And now as this pillar is guiding them, they're making their way through the wilderness. And here we come to chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community 
set out from the desert of sin. And by the way, it's, it, it, it doesn't in, uh, in, in Hebrew, it's just the word sin, which doesn't translate into our word sin. Um, so it's, it's not saying they were in a desert full of sin. It just happens to be a place thing. And it doesn't have significance. Traveling from one place to another as the Lord commanded. And so they are dutifully obeying the Lord. And they're setting out by ranks, by sections of two million people. By the way, it's, it's hard to even imagine. We are fresh from a tour of Greece and Turkey where we saw ancient cities and gathering places. And even Ephesus, the greatest of all the cities that we traveled to, was probably only a city of a little over 200, maybe 300,000 people tops. We're moving 6 million people along. Greater than any ancient city would have had capacity for. Moving along through a wilderness. A really astounding picture if we could have uh, been there. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? It seems like whenever you want to be a bit of a drama queen, you always talk about your puppy or your kids. But, but the poor little animals and our, and our poor little children. But yet there's nothing selfless or transcendently righteous about anything that they are saying at this point in time. And the thing that's remarkable is that for a people who have received the provision of God step after step, realizing that God has even told them in chapter 15 that you're going to be tested initially. You're going to be refined to become a great people, to do my will, to be my instruments for glory across the land and to spread the knowledge of me through your great example. But even despite all of that, here they are at the first inconvenience of significance in their lives. And, and what do they do? It's, it's Massa and Meribah. The, the names of this place is two, two words that... At the end it says the place is called Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and tested. Quarreling and testing. Massa and Meribah. For the Israelites reading this, they would like to be able to take the eraser to this portion of scripture. This event is referred to so many times in scripture and not in a positive way. This is one of the darkest moments for Israel the time where they, as the sermon title says, they decide, let's put God on trial. The God who has delivered them. The God who is their liberator. They are so quick to put on trial. And I'll, I'll develop that as we go through this. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put... The Lord to the test. Again, Masa and Meribah, the two words that will keep getting repeated through the story. But the people were thirsty for water there. And, you know, despite Moses saying that, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord. 
What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff, the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Horeb is also another word. We mentioned it earlier in one of the lessons uh, for Sinai. So they're, they're near the place where the Ten Commandments will be given. Uh, and, and so they are at a rock near Horeb. By the way, the rock that is pictured here is, is a rock right near Mount Sinai. It's a rock that some have speculated could have actually been the rock because oddly in the middle of a desert right near Sinai, there is massive evidence for water erosion that shaped this rock. Uh, and so if you go online and you look up, you know, water from a rock, uh, this is often an image that, that pops up. I've not been to, to, to Mount Sinai or to the desert near there, uh, but, but this does seem to be a very popular attraction as, as one where this, again, could have been, uh, but we don't know for sure. Uh, but the people were, uh, I'm sorry, then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. I'm sorry, I've already read this. I'm going to go to verse 6. I will, after the, the, uh, Moses and the elders and the staff go out before the people, uh, please listen carefully to this. This is what God says. And sometimes we, we forget that, that he's saying this. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock. And water will come out of it for the people to drink. You know, I don't know if this is what I would expect again from God. It seems at this point, have they not totally uh, overextended the, the patience of God? But yet God again devises a way to drive home to his dear, precious possession, Israel, a way to provide provision for them, water for their thirst. As he was always planning to do, of course, but to do it in such a way that would drive home for them the relationship that this God wants to have with these people. Right. Strike the rock and water will come out of it. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Mirabah. Massa means testing. Mirabah means quarreling. Because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And, and so we have this remarkable, sad chapter in the narrative of God with his people. And as, as God has done so much to bring these people into joyous triumph and liberation, the quickness of, of God's people. And I, I think for, for us to take a hard look at this, the quickness of God's people when everything is not going exactly as we anticipate, how quickly it is that we can test God and put God on trial. Uh, Massa to test God, quarrel is, is not actually the, uh, probably the, the, the chief translation of Meribah. Meribah is also used repeatedly throughout Exodus and Numbers of a situation where you would put someone on trial. And as a matter of fact, there is very much the elements here of 
a trial that is going on. And, and I want us to take a, a look at that. But, but before we do, I want to look at just some of the aspects of this passage that are commented on, not by me, but by other scriptures. Because, of course, that's amazing insight for us to have into this story. Uh, my, my first point today is grumbling after grace. Having received so much, undeserved, completely by the hand of God, the response, rather than being one of gratitude, is one of grumbling. Uh, almost like a, a spoiled child uh, after the, the, the great gift of, of Christmas Eve, uh, wondering what's next on Christmas Day. And when it doesn't meet expectations, rather than continuing to revel in the unmerited favor of all that has been lavished upon the child, uh, instead it's a, a quick response to, mm, you know, but what have you done for me lately? But this is not even, that's trivial, by the way, compared to what we have in sight here. Because the grumbling, after having been showered with the grace of God, the grumbling involves a testing and a, an adjudicating, putting God on trial. Now look at the elements that are in this story that are here so far. First of all, he says, to bring out all the elders with you. The elders are the ones who judge. The elders are the ones who sit at the city gates. And they are the judges of Israel. Later in this passage, we'll see them actually judging Israel when they follow Jethro's advice and appoint judges over Israel. And it will include certainly these men. So he first brings, a, uh, brings out all the judges of Israel. And then he comes out as well. And then he brings the staff of consequence. The staff that was brought before Pharaoh. The staff of consequence that delivered the ten plagues are, are suddenly now appears and is about to be used in this courtroom scene that is developing. The next thing that has a, a courtroom kind of vibe to it is that there is a, an execution consequence that is in sight. Where Moses says, these people in this quarreling, in this testing and trying that is going on here, they are ready to stone me. That only happens after a careful deliberation and a careful trying of a matter. Trying as in putting on trial. And that is, is also in view here. But then there's one other thing that is said, as I said, please take note of it. Is that after all of these elements are brought together, God says in verse 6, I will stand before you. That phrase, and, and whether it's by the rock, on the rock... By the rock, on the rock, that doesn't really matter as much. But what really matters is that phrase, I will stand before you. That is not like, I stand before you. When this phrase is used biblically to stand before you, it's for one who is standing before a judge. So God is saying, I will be the one that will go ahead and be put on trial by you. I will stand before you, judges. I will stand before you, Moses, with the staff of consequence of one who is to be judged. This is unlike any God, false God, of course, that all of their, that their neighbors would have appreciated. This is astounding that when they grumble, that this is the scene that starts to be put into place. In Deuteronomy, when Moses later recounts this scene, 
And remember, Deuteronomy is five speeches by Moses that give commentary on the first four books of the Bible. And especially, though, on the book of Exodus. And to get great insight into the book of Exodus, and as you study out the book of Exodus, read the book of Deuteronomy, because it does provide really amazing insight. But, but this is one that provides this commentary. Uh, so here, Moses uh, says in, in his uh, second speech, I believe it is, Know therefore, that the, and I'm reading from Deuteronomy 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess, because you're righteous, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. So keep that in mind. Although we don't see it here, the commentary that gives us insight into what's going on here is that what the Israelites are doing at this point in time, because they're not going to the Lord with their concerns, they're grumbling amongst themselves and then bringing it upon God's servant. What this has done, it has provoked God through their grumbling and testing and complaining has provoked the Lord to his wrath. I mean, that's something to sober you. To think, whoa, I have brought the Lord to wrath. And this is how serious this matter is. To grumble against the Lord and to actually assert the idea is, is God even with us? Is their final question that really does kind of generate the trial atmosphere? Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the desert, in the wilderness, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord, even at Horeb. And here we are at Horeb. You provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. Now, there are other events at Horeb as well that might be referenced here. But, but, but know that these events are events that provoke the Lord to wrath. And I think the one thing that really does seem to be an affront to the God who has intimately made himself known, who has been a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, who has been with his people from the moment that they have come through their, their slavery, oppression, they are now saying, so is God with us? Or not. Wow, right? And, and I think for us to be sobered by this. Because we live in the most entitled time and place in all the world. Right? If, I, I'm, I'm awful at this in my entitlement, right? If, if, if my order at Burger King, where I can have it my way has even a hint of mayo that, that is on that bun, you bet I'm turning around and I'm making a fuss and like, I said no mayo and there's mayo on this. I, I, you know what? You probably don't appreciate how much I really am repulsed by mayo, but it's a really big deal. And, but, right? I mean, I mean, this is just kind of in our DNA, sadly, because we grow up, this is the worst thing about us, and what we've been trained to be, we have grown up consumers and it's maybe one of the worst things that one can be as a follower of God is consumers and we need to be especially on our guard right now because this is the time where uh, discretionary spending goes through the roof in America 
And the, we, we actually account for 40% of consumer spending, just our, our, our little place here, during this time of year. Right now. And so we get into a consumer mindset, and it might even be, maybe it's not God because we know better to say it that way, but maybe we're like the people here. What has the church done for me lately? What has my Bible talk done for me lately? Why is it that our Bible talk has people that I can't relate to? I don't feel like that actually is meeting my needs. And frankly, I'm just a little bit disappointed in my small group. Well, let me just make this plain again. Praise God that any of us could be in a small group in the body of Christ. And praise God that the people in our small groups are not like us. Because if everybody was like us, well, then we would be like those jive churches that are all white or all black or all something. Never God's intent. God grieves over, over such segregation. And, and a church that only attracts people like you, well, that's nothing supernatural there going on at all. That points to humanism well more than it could ever point to the hand of God. That you've only attracted people that are similar one to another. My heart is so gladdened as I look across this kind of crazy rainbow coalition that, you know, has been brought together in this room. Young, old, educated, uneducated, uh, Every, every color under the, I mean, I mean, really astounding that, that, that this is really the case. And when, and when you're in a Bible talk and the people are really different from you, well, then know that the net that Jesus casts actually gets all kinds of fish and he does not discriminate. Or maybe you're murmuring or, or quarreling against God because... It's just that, you know, this service isn't really meeting my needs. I, I like music that, you know, is, is, is a bit more just kind of, you know, Christian contemporary rock where I can raise my hands and just, you know, what? my goodness, be part of the solution. Right. Amen. I mean, yes, everybody's got these really strong opinions about minuscule matters. Right. We are the body of Christ. We've been redeemed by the blood of God's Son. All of our sins have been taken away and we have been guaranteed a place in the age to come. And we have been given the greatest mission and the greatest significance that could ever be our lives to actually be vessels of that astounding message and bring it to people who need to hear it. And if we start to major in the minors... And, and talk about, oh, I don't know about this, and you know, it, you know it, I, I don't like the, the kind of the parking lot. What in the world? Massa and Mirabah. Like, let's, let's just keep our eyes on the astounding thing it is to be in the body of Christ. <laughs> in Psalm 95, the psalmist writes about this event. He says, today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Mirabah, 
as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. You know, that psalm goes on to say, for 40 years I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose heart go astray, they've not known my ways. And then God declares after those 40 years, so I declared on an oath in my anger, this is still Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. There is a, a point where we can remain so obstinate, so stubborn, so unbelieving, and also so entitled that we no longer want to participate in a covenant of grace. A covenant of grace is meant to only work where it is so overwhelming to a people that their lives are then fueled by gratitude. And if American consumerism can trump, I don't mean that in that way, by the way, it's a normal verb, it's an everyday verb, but if American consumerism can in some horrible way trump the grace of God that produces gratitude in our hearts, well then we're not really trying to participate in the covenant that God has designed. And we will not enter His rest. Hebrews recognizes the importance of this as well. Hebrews quotes Psalm 95. And I'm going to read in verse 12, but let me just, I'll read to you from a little bit earlier in Hebrews, okay? Because Hebrews really keys in on this event. This chapter 17 event is a major event that covers most of chapter 3 and chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews. So maybe in your leisure you can go back and study that. But earlier in chapter 3 and verse 7 it says, Today if you hear His voice... You remember that from, the, from Psalm 95, right? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. And then he, I'll skip down a couple of verses to where we are now in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's the antidote, is that we have community. And community is meant to help us never become nasty, entitled, spoiled consumers. But people filled with wonder at every step that we take, that we are a people of God. We have been bought by the blood of His Son. Who are we to have this, to have this honor, to have this significance, to have this dignity that marks every step of our life? Praise God for that. But he goes on to say here, we have come to share in Christ. I'm continuing to read in, in verses 14 uh, on. Just listen. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. As has been said, today if you hear his voice, he says it again, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those that Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Now what I just read had a bunch of parallel statements in the original language. And they all set themselves up 
as different ways of saying the same thing. I'm going to do it on a slide here for you. So take a look here at verses 16 through 19 as he refers to these people. Who are these people? Those who heard and rebelled. Next verse. Those who sinned. Next verse. Those who disobeyed. And verse 19. Those that had unbelief. You can see the, the parallelism that rebelling, even though you hear and you rebel against God, well, that is sinning against God. That happens to be disobeying God. That happens to be not believing God. You know, and interesting, many times we'll say, oh, yeah, that person's a believer. Really? God's standard for what belief is, is radically high. And I know it's a casual term to throw out. Oh, yeah, they're a great believer. Really, let the Bible actually define what a believer is. And, and not some sort of best guess that, that we might have. Because when we let the Bible define what a believer is, not that I believe in the concept of God. You, these people believed in the concept of God. But they were actually being brought to the wrath of God and died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Of course they understood God. Of course they've been delivered by God. Of course they understood all of that. But to, to be a believer is one who obeys and one who hears and does not rebel against the Lord. Right. Uh, and and I, think, I think for us to realize that the heart of sin and disobedience and rebellion is whether we really trust in the Lord or not. And this is the essence of what we are to be of a people of God is that we, because of all that God has done for us, are to live lives of a beautiful, all-in trust. Trust and belief are just synonyms in the Bible. All-in belief and trust in our Jesus. Every step that we take is, is exactly for that. And, and to help us get there, it is unbelievable, but yet believable, what God does. I, I, I'm gobsmacked at what God does here. I have a British daughter-in-law, so I can say that word. <laughs> My second point is, here's God's response. Second point, grace for the grumblers. After grace was their grumbling, and God meets their grumbling with even more grace. But a grace at this point in time that really does cause you to have to kind of lift your jaw back up and to think, what in the world? What kind of God loves like this? What kind of God can have patience like this? The patience, the perseverance, and the provision of God that we now see and appreciate is really earth-shattering. Because there's one other passage that talks about this passage. And it's in 1 Corinthians 10. There it says, and I'll read from verse 2. This is verse 4, but I'll read just a bit. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Now I want you to appreciate the depth of the grace that is going on here. And I'm going to go back to this courtroom scene and I want you to remember now that the fullness, although Moses and Israel couldn't appreciate it, 
But as we read this, we are called to appreciate it. The fullness of this courtroom scene is that Jesus is there. And this rock is more than just an astounding provision of the Lord of water to the thirsty. This rock is who? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And that's why God says, and I will be by the rock. I will be alongside the rock. I will be on the rock. I, I'm not sure how, but, but God says that, that I am there with the rock. I am there with my son. And so let's go back to this courtroom scene. Bring out the elders. Bring out the staff of consequence that wrought down the plagues. Bring out the charge that was against you. Stone him. And now let's bring out the accused who will stand before you. I will stand before you. And so God is the accused. And God is now put on trial. And why? Because the crime that is against God here is so heinous. To actually make the accusation that God is not with us after God has done so much for them. To grumble and test and quarrel against God or His servants is so repulsive so heinous in the sight of God that it cannot just be forgiven with a sweep of the hand. The people have gone too far. We have gone too far. We have understood the Lord. The, the, the Lord. We have heard and rebelled against Him. We have actually committed cosmic treason, as have they, so severely that if God is going to be a God of love and a God of justice, this one can't just be acquitted by just simply saying, ah, I'll, I'll give you one more chance. Because he's not a God of justice at this point in time. And as he is about to, in just a couple chapters, give them laws of justice, if they're to take God seriously as a God of justice and a God of consequence, well, then he is going to have to execute this provision with justice. This provision just can't be given out. It would be akin to a, a lawyer, I mean, I'm sorry, a, a, a judge here in Hampton Roads having heinous crimes. What would be a, a, a crime that would be so unspeakable that it would just turn your stomach? Right? Child molestation. Alright. So, so let's say there's a, a, a fellow that, that comes before a judge for a series of rapes and child molestations. Comes before the judge and the judge says, Well, you're lucky that I'm a Christian man. Because of me being a Christian man, today, young fellow, despite your rapes and your serial molestations of children, I am just going to let you go. Good on you. Have a nice day. Would you consider that a good judge? That is not a good judge. Because that is not a just judge. And for God to just throw justice out the window, or for any of us to throw justice out the window in our view of God, is to make an idol of God. God is not just a God of love, although He is. 
God is a God of love and a God of justice. God is a God of holiness, wanting a holy people. And for a holy people in desecration of Him to, to actually malign the Lord, this is not a holy people. And God, if He's going to be just, can't just say, oh well, boys will be boys. Let's give you another shot. Here's your participation trophy. I'm sure it'll help you do better next time. No, God has to let you know, you lost that game. And you're going to bear the consequence of it. Or somehow make it clear that a consequence will be reckoned. And how is that consequence reckoned? Because Jesus is the rock. And God before Moses is in the seat of judgment. Moses in the, in the position of judgment. God before him as one to be judged. As Christ was. As Christ was judged. So that we would not be judged. And then... For Moses, as the end result of this, to bring about the provision of God, he is to take the staff of consequence, the staff that is the fist of God, the staff that brought about the plagues, and to take it and strike the rock. To take it and strike Jesus for the sin of the people. So that the provision of God could flow their way. And only then did the water come forth for the people. I think as we look at this, we realize we have something even more amazing. That as we come to the Lord in all of our various wanderings and grumblings and quarrelings. And all of the different ways that we have, we have overtly rebelled against the Lord. Rejected the Lord. Had unbelief about the Lord. And know that God takes this seriously. This is such a big deal at this point. That God stops everything. To bring about this judgment scene. This cannot be taken away with a wipe of a hand. Our complaining against the Lord. Our quarreling against the Lord. Is that big a deal. Our unbelief with God. Is the biggest thing there is. And it has to be rectified. Such a awful, awful sin in the sight of God. Again, for us, well, well, you know, I believe, I don't believe. No, no, no. From God's perspective, if, if you've been able to come to this place of knowing Jesus and then come to a place of, of doubt and unbelief in Him. Now, now, again, doubt is fine if you bring it to the Lord. But they're not bringing it to the Lord. They're grumbling amongst themselves. They're listening to the accuser. And then they're grumbling against God's people. There is no, ah, you know what? Here we are, it's like day three, no water. Let's all pray to the Lord. That's not the scene that's going on here. Now when you have doubt and you have difficulty and you need provision in your life, rather than say, I don't know if God's a good God anymore. I don't even know if God exists. Uh, no, no, this is, again, what is in view here is, is that not someone who says, please God. Please, God, bring deliverance to our lives. Please, God, we need you now. God loves that. God appreciates that. Moses does that again and again. And just when you think God is like, come on, Moses. what? Again, he's like, oh, so precious. 
to have my Moses come before me, even with his times of difficulty that he wants to lay at my feet. But, but it only increases intimacy. Again, do not take your quarreling, your testing of God, your unbelief, my unbelief, my sin as just an oh well. Fight this thing with all that we've got and come before the Lord with it. Come before the Lord that help me to overcome my unbelief. Help me, Lord, to come a place where I am simply empowered every step of my day with a faith, a faith that transcends understanding. Lord, let me walk that way because of all that you've done for me, for the fact that you bore the brunt of the staff of consequence because I'm the one who grumbled against you. And now that I know that, now that I've been delivered by that, now that I've been given the provision, the water springing up within me forever, given to me by Christ, even though He bore the full brunt of the blow of the staff, even though His blood was the consequence for my mess. Lord, now that I know all of that, and now, God, that I still have these moments of unbelief, Please, God, help me in that. Bring it to the Lord. It's exactly what He wants. He wants that intimacy with you. He wants you to be refined. He wants you to be His people. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to be the ones that that make the difference in this world, bringing other people into the promised land. He's got nothing but the highest aspirations for all of us. But when we appreciate that that rock was Jesus, wow, wow, what a God of grace we have. In my closing charge, it's exactly what Hebrews says when it uh, took, takes a look at this passage. Encourage one another daily. So familiar. But familiarity breeds contempt. It's a charge that you've given to other people more times than perhaps you can count. But let's take it seriously today, knowing how important this is to God. And what I mean by this is not just, ah, Clay, you're awesome. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's a small shadow of what it would be versus letting your brother or sister know who they are in Christ because of the blood of Christ. To be able to provide that to some person every day. And if everybody does that, and, and who knows how all of the crossed wires end up, where, where either you get encouragement or you give encouragement, the very fact that you look up a scripture that is so affirming that actually energizes a walk of faith in someone else, oh my goodness, how amazing is that? Why? Because you don't want anyone to be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, to come to a point of unbelief and turning away from the living God. The antidote for all of that, according to Hebrews 3, talking about this passage of Massa and Mirabah, the antidote for all of that is a deliberate deployment of a passage of faith brought to bear against your brother or sister every day. If that happens and that becomes the new normal for us, that becomes the DNA of this body of Christ, that becomes the culture of the coastal region, Holy smokes, 
I mean, what a massive difference that would be that every single day there is some way or another either a giving or a getting of that level of encouragement. Then we walk by faith. We work by faith. We love by faith. We make a massive difference as the body of Christ. And we honor. We honor that rock. That rock that is Christ. We honor that Christ that was struck for us. So that we could be formed into this body. So that we could marvel at that love. At that grace. And so that we could reinforce that to one another every day. So that every day is even a little bit greater than the day before. As we are energized by the truth of God. Amen.